Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with Bill Arnold. Thank you for joining me today. It's going to be a wonderful uh, program today, as usual. I've planned it just for you. I've got Guide Talk uh, starting here in uh, less than 30 seconds, according to my time clock. And then uh, John and Pam Bloom will be with me in the second hour. That'll be Deep Thinker Thursday. It'd be nice to have the Blooms back with me in studio. So that is what's planned. And you know Guide Talk, so let me know what your questions are. Send them over fast and furious, 877-933-2484. Maybe you've got a question you've always wanted to ask your pastor, but maybe you were nervous that uh, it's your pastor, so you'd be seeing them all the time. So I've got three pastors here uh, that you can ask questions to. Let me know what your questions are. 877-933-2484, today's power panel is the trio of Tom Brock, Tom Parrish, and Peter Kapsner. Gentlemen, welcome. Hi, Bill. Hi, Bill. Hey, Bill. That's it? That's all you guys got? Hi, the every, best. Oh, everybody okay. in Radio Land. You are the best. So, how, <laughs> we're off to a great start. You guys doing well? I am. So far, yeah. Thankful and, for day to day. Yeah. And, Tom, you've uh, recently just did a little driving trip. I just took five days and went on a sightseeing maniac tour yeah. in my car of the Midwest. Had a great time. And you got as far as Branson? I got all the way down to Branson. Yep. yep. You, you went to Springfield, I, Illinois? I did. Saw I Lincoln's home? Saw Lincoln's house and did museum. Did you try to stay there? Because they don't let you stay there. <laughs> no, no, they wouldn't let me stay in the Lincoln bedroom. <laughs> but, yeah. And you had a good time? I had a great time. Good, good. So what, uh, what's been on your hearts this week? What have you read in Scripture lately that... Make your makes your heart go wow. Mm. So I actually was just listening to the Bible Project podcast, which nice. I really appreciate. My, my my son had sent me an episode about priesthood of all things, and they did boy did they do such a good job. And and one of the things that was really compelling to me was that the original vocation of the image bearers in Genesis one and two was that of priesthood. That to be a priest is to stand at the intersection of the divine and in this case creation. And so they. That their job as stewards of creation was to to mediate and to reflect the presence of God in in a physical, tangible, real way on this earth. And of course, then you get into the fall and everything else goes with it. But I haven't finished listening to the episode. But apparently, based on what my son was saying, is that they end up tying it into the the veil of the temple tearing in two and the reestablishment of the priesthood and the roles of prophets and kings and all of those sorts of things. So. I guess for me, Bill, what I love is when somebody takes arcs and themes within the Bible, because boy, did those scripture writers really understand the different arcs and themes. When John was writing his gospel, for example, he would have been so deeply anchored in all of what had been. And uh, and so it's, it's just fun to listen to two people do an entertaining and really faithful job in the text. And so that's actually how I spent my drive home today. Very nice. Well, this is like fun. Yeah, keep- no, solid. I keep going back to that text in Jude. Uh, first saw it about a year and a half ago. Absolutely blows me away. Verse 5 that actually says this. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, 
who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroy those who do not believe. And I believe this all my heart that Jesus is this purpose of the whole Bible. But the ESV found earlier, they're working from earlier manuscripts, and some of the early manuscripts have the name Jesus in there, mm-hmm. where later manuscripts only have the name Lord or God. So all of a sudden now you have Jesus, you know, literally bringing the children out of Israel, literally setting them free and taking them to the promised land. And it is a powerful, powerful statement. And you see where the New Testament is emphasizing that the focus is uh, not on the rituals, not on the laws, but on the person of Jesus, because he is God and what he's done for us. So I love that verse. And I've been listening to the book of Leviticus. Have you really? On your on your drive? <laughs> on my uh, on my no no on my iPhone. When okay. I can't sleep at night, and so I'm listening to Leviticus. And <laughs> Does that help you get back to sleep? Well, you know, here's the thing. You know what? What, <laughs> what help? What you know? You you listen to this and all about the tassels on the robes and how big mm-hmm. the, and you wonder why does God explain all that in detail? And part of it, I just don't know. I, I did ask a professor at Bethel Seminary why that is, and his answer was because the Bible wasn't written just for us. You know, it was also written for the ancient Jews all the way down till today. But I got to admit, one question I want to ask the Lord in heaven is, why didn't you clearly spell out predestination? And why did you spend so much time on the, the measurements of the temple? That's a question I'm going to ask. It won't matter when you get there, Tom. That's what my <laughs> wife always tells me. I've got a question. She says, it won't matter. Well, I'll just be thrilled sure, to be there. And your wife is right. I'm I know sure it. she's right. I know. Here's a question from a listener. Believers will have glorified bodies in the new heaven. I'm looking forward to that. That'll be mm-hmm. awesome. Yeah. Will unbelievers enter eternity with some sort of body or only their souls? Well, Luke 16, the guy in hell is begging to get out, and he's in torment so he's, I think he's got some form of a body yeah. to be in torment. And please let him dip his, the water just a little bit on my tongue. Mm-hmm. So he's got a tongue. Now, you know, what exactly that means, only the Lord knows. But Jesus told that, you know, and everybody says it's a parable and very well it, it is. But Jesus names the guy. He calls him Lazarus. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's the only parable that actually names somebody. So maybe it's not a parable, but maybe he's talking about an actual human. Well, Jesus also said, don't simply fear the one who can, you know, kill you, but fear the one who can destroy both body and soul. Yes. And so the body seems to be included in the concept of hell. There you go. Good good point. Peter? It seems like the pause might might mean that I should jump in, and I have have absolutely nothing. I I, I think Brock and Parrish covered what would be the possible things. I I, I confess that I've thought often about the glorified body, but I have never considered for a second— uh, what it might mean uh, to be to be walking in the absence of God in hell, and what that might mean for our body. So, so chalk it up to research. Question number one for today. Yeah, I like it. This next question is difficult to read, and my my heart is very tender towards this listener. I've been struggling with my son's suicide a year ago. Before mm-hmm. he ran ahead to heaven, I prayed to God to help him. Now I'm having a hard time getting back in the Word. I need some insight on why should I continue to pray despite all that has happened. God bless you, dear listener. Absolutely. Right. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I just, there's probably a number of different uh, rivers we could swim in and and, and helping walk through this a little bit, none of which is going to be totally satisfactory to sort of bring that sense of peace back to the soul, because you just, there's some things in life that just won't be undone. It doesn't mean that they mark us for a lifetime, but they, but they, in some ways, you know, we, we carry with that stuff, that, that stuff with us for a lifetime. And so while 
I think any of the three or four of us would want to be able to have some, some magic bullet way of being able to walk out of that sorrow. I, I think maybe some of the pathways we can go down is, is that beautiful invitation to, to recognize that we don't have a high priest that can't sympathize with us, that, that has walked in the, the turmoil and the suffering and the pain and the sorrow. And, and I think one of the things that we struggle with as American believers is we have a pretty thin view of suffering and tribulation and trial in terms of how to walk well within it. We're always trying to avoid it. And so when it strikes us in such a stark and brutal way as as the suicide of a loved one does, we don't have a lot of hooks on which to hang that. We have, we have to kind of find and muddle through. And so it would... It, it, it would be unusual if somebody was wanting to get back in the words so quickly. And, and actually, we have some dear friends of ours who um, had this this same event kind of thing happen to them in the last uh, 18 months, and they're faithful believers. And and I don't want to get into their story just for the privacy of, of their life, but but what they're walking through sounds like a very similar kind of thing to what our listener is saying. And, and it just... Time doesn't necessarily heal all wounds, but but recognizing um, in, within the Easter in which we're walking right now that the high priest that was walking in the, tri- the trials and tribulations, he did at the end of the day conquer death. And so while we live in this present darkness in these present moments, there is a hope that awaits. And I, and I guess maybe the, the final bit of it is, is it possible to ask for the hope in the midst of the grief um, and that we grieve unbelievably um, hard and and well and with great tears and sleepless nights, but but to somewhere in there ask God for that piece of hope so that we're among the people that don't grieve without hope. Beautiful, uh, beautiful, Peter, Peter Kapsner, ladies and gentlemen. It is a good word. Yeah, I don't know exactly what the listener is facing. I know when our first grandson was killed, I spent a year almost sitting in a corner crying, and I'm a pastor of a church, right? I'm supposed to have my act together, but it was. Uh, not right. Shouldn't have happened. First grandson. Uh, he had been with us the night before. I'd, I'd held him on my lap all night and played with him. And then this happened. And I think that for me, the blessing was that I had some Christian friends who weren't afraid to come to me, weren't afraid to call me. And although I really didn't want to pray, and I must admit, I was angry for a while. I was angry with the Lord. I was angry at people. I was angry at life. They came, and they let me be angry at them, if I can say it that way. And then they'd say, okay, Tom, but we're here, and we love you, and we're going to pray with you anyway. And they did. And it was through that, through their perseverance, that I came out of that fog. You know, I I knew the truth deep inside. I didn't emotionally feel the truth. I was angry. So they helped lead me out of that. So I I pray, uh, the listener, I pray you have some good Christian friends. Don't try to do this on your own. Amen. Get with others who will work with you, pray with you, listen yep. to you, Talk uh, cry with you. And, you know, it's yep. 18 years for me. And I must admit, about once a year, I still shed tears. I mean, it still hits me. And I think there are specifically support groups for people yep. that have lost people through suicide. Well, the problem with suicide is that there are a lot of the what ifs and the if onlys, oh, yeah. and, and the devil goes to work if oh, you had done this or if you had yeah. done that or said this. Yeah. And that's not reality. No. We, we want to change it so badly we're willing to take on the guilt. The reality is people make decisions at certain times in their life. Some are good, some are bad, yeah. and some are permanent. And all we can do, if there was any sin, which there probably wasn't, is say, God, forgive me, and I forgive myself, and then move on. And like you say, often we need Christian brothers and sisters to help us move on because we can't move on by ourselves. Right. We need so one may, another. You know, maybe this, this listener has done this, but if you haven't talked it out deeply with people, that's hugely important. And then as far as getting back in the Word, I think we get in the Word whether we feel like getting into it or not. I mean, there's so often I don't feel like reading the Bible, but I, I have a 
practice where I do it daily. And, uh, I, you know. Yeah, I'd like to, Tom, maybe you could talk a little bit more because the, the move on sounds insensitive because mm-hmm. uh, I don't think you ever move on. Mm-hmm. I think you try to move forward, but no. you don't move on. And Well, I don't know that we ever get over stuff in this life. Right. And that's what the next life is for. Right. But move on in the sense that you don't kick yourself if you think you did yeah. something wrong. Gotcha. That's what okay. I mean. Okay. Yeah. I appreciate that clarification. Well, the other way, too, is that, and, and I would encourage this listener, <sighs> go out of your way to minister to other people. Even in the midst of your grief, ministering to others is a powerful, powerful thing. And it gives peace. I got a call from the same funeral home that we had my grandson's body in three months later. And they said, we know we just buried your grandson. We're very sorry. We got a veteran who died and we can't get anybody to do the funeral. Will you do it? That was the last thing I wanted to do. But I said, okay. <laughs> so I, I go over. It turns out they were bikers and they were veterans and they were a pretty rough crew. And there were two groups there. And right before the service began, it was going to be just right there in the chapel at the funeral home. A fist fight broke out between Right in the chapel between these two different. Were groups. you one of the fighters? No, no, I okay. stayed. I stayed up on the stage and uh, right. I stayed away. And the police had to come, and several were handcuffed and taken away. But you know what? I laughed after seeing that. I started laughing, <laughs> and it took me a lot to get over my laughter. And I finally realized that they did it for their own stupid reasons. The Lord gave it to me as a gift because it broke the ice for me of my own pain. What I'm watching these people in a funeral fight with one another of which gang this guy was in. So the Lord works. When we say in strange ways, I really honestly believe that. It is very strange, but never dismiss anything he may do to bring you comfort and hope in those times. All right, let me jump to a quick break. and We'll be right back. Let me know what your questions are for the power panel, 877-933-2484. Pastor Tom Brock, Tom Parrish, and Peter Kaffner are... My guest today will be right back. Guy Talk, keep the questions coming in because I love it. 877-933-2484. Ask any question you like. We'll do our very, very best to answer it. Uh, Pastors Tom Brock, Tom Parrish, and Peter Kapsner are my ex- uh, distinguished panel today. Thank you, Bill. <laughs> You're wow. welcome. You're welcome. <laughs> Being so nice to you guys today. It's very kind. Mm-hmm. Got a nice uh, comment from a listener that said, I really appreciate the, the panel and how polite they are and respectful they are of each other. And I thought that was really nice because I think it's true. And we re, we genuinely like each other. We do. Yeah. Indeed. Indeed. I should speak for myself. Yeah. I like you guys. No, no. no. <laughs> we like you. That was a big risk there. Yeah, I know. I kind of put myself out there. You guys no, no, probably we, don't we like me. Right. We love you. So we think this is good. We think this is good because we get deep on this program. We do. That's, what, honest. I, yeah, that's yeah. what I appreciate because yes. sometimes... Christian programming cannot be so deep. No offense to anybody. I'm not talking about KTS, of course. I'm talking about all the other stations out there. <laughs> mm-hmm. <clears throat> Maybe. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, speaking of, a listener says in Ephesians 4.26, the Bible says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. So I became a believer. So I'm born again. And I'm honestly wanting to obey and trying to obey his word on this. But I don't know how to be angry but not sin. 
Any insights? I think we've always associated anger with sinning. The Bible does not. Mm -hmm. There is a place to be angry. The Lord's wrath is anger. There is a place for anger. The Jesus who's coming back with the sharp double-edged sword coming out of his mouth is not just the good shepherd, although he is, but he's also the warrior who will cut down his enemies. I mean, both images are there. We are to be angry at the things the Lord's angry at, where, where people hurt one another, where people abuse one another, where people violate his will. Yes, we're to have anger toward that. But at the same time, where the sin comes in is when I want to somehow become God to those people and either put them in their place, put them down, or somehow straighten them out. My goal is to present the good news of Jesus and let them hear what they need to hear and see what happens or how the Lord works on that. But I think you can be angry uh, without sinning. And I I can't say I've always done it, but over the years I've learned more and more how to do that and how to control my mouth and my thoughts. And I'm thinking there's two verses, both of which are true, of course, that we need to put together. The verse you just, or he wrote, um, be angry and sin not. Yes. And then James, is it one, chapter one? The anger of, be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. I think that means generally our anger is not so good. <laughs> no, it so That's why isn't. we need to be slow to anger. That's but right. there is an anger that is from God that's holy and righteous. And Paul, the apostle, said to the Galatian heretics that I wish they'd cut themselves off. Now, that's pretty blunt. Yep. But there does come a time when Jesus and the and John the Baptist would call you, you brood of vipers, you know. So there does come a time under God's anointing when there's pure, righteous anger. But the anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God <laughs> normally. Yeah, I, I think that's so well said, you guys. And I, I think a piece of the puzzle, I can't remember when I ran across it, but it stuck with me to this day, is that a couple things about the anger of God. One is that it's not a, a pervasive or perpetual characteristic within God when, when it's described in the scripture. It's a, it's a passing energy within God that accomplishes something, and, it, and, it, and it's motivated um, by grief. And so I think if we can maybe just enter into that for a second and say, gosh, um, God is, his anger is moved by the energy of grief that he longs for something different, right? That God would will that none would perish or that God would will that his children would be walking in the ways of his delight, that they would participate in his ever unfolding party, like all of that stuff. And when that doesn't happen, there is grief that comes when he woos and woos and woos and woos and woos, and then his children don't have him, right? Today, if you hear my voice, don't harden your heart. And he continues to call. But at some point in time, he says, okay, um, in it, this is this is Jesus uh, hovering over Jerusalem, right? When he says, "Oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to gather you under my wings, but you would not have me." And and in those places, you see the longing of God that then becomes the grief of God when His people won't have Him or when they're acting out in sin, and then the anger moves to sort of set them aside and to take them take them out of play. But but it's an anger at the sin that's motivated by grief. And so I, to put all of that together. My anger is so often unrighteous because I'm mad that somebody offended me or like got into my mug or got into my space or it somehow impacted me. And so I'll, I'll fire back in anger or something like that. But but if I can touch the heartbeat of grief that even the, the sinful expression in front of me might be unbelievably um, wrong in the eyes of, uh, of God and the kingdom. If grief is moving my heart and a longing that something could be different, now we're probably starting to touch the periphery of what is righteous anger when it's moved by the grief that longs for something different as opposed to asserting power that seems to to crush. And boy, oh boy, 
you know, when I get angry with my kids too often, it isn't because of grief. It's because they did something that I don't like. And I just happen to have the power that can kind of, you know, take that out of play at that point. That That is such inappropriate anger versus the grief-based anger. You brought up a really good point, Peter. And, and the point that I see here that's so incredible is that you're right. I normally get angry because I'm offended. I don't get my way. People don't listen, whatever it may be. The Lord's anger is born out of what you were talking about because he knows the consequences. Yeah, he knows exactly, exactly, exactly what's going to happen as a result of what we're doing and how many other people are going to get hurt in the process. And that's where his anger comes in. But it is always his will to be redemptive. And his hands are always stretched out. Yeah, Tom, and I think we can't emphasize that too much because it actually repositions our picture of God in, a, in what I would say is a biblical way, not not a fantasy way, but a biblical way, because I think we think God moves uh, in anger because somehow he's insecure and has been offended in some ways that then he's going to take it out on somebody. And and I think when we, how you just said that, and, I, and I'd have to like even just listen back to how you said it so well, that it, it's being moved by something different. And, and it's such a different kind of anger. It, it, what it is, is he long, he knows the consequences of these things and he longs for us to be living in the freedom and the ways of delight. And so he moves against those consequences in grief and in anger because he, he doesn't want to see us walk in those ways. That's very different than kind of a self-centered God that is getting offended all the time the way that I might as a parent. And then there is the verse that says, God has anger every day. What do we do with that? And, and uh, there is a, an anger that God has against sin, and it's because of his holiness. And I think you're right. You know, he doesn't want us to get hurt. That's why he gets angry. But there's also just a, a general holiness of God that uh, God is love, and, and we want to stress that. But God is holy, and he hates sin. Well, you know? he does. And he know, look at it this way. How many other people get hurt by my sin? A lot. A lot of people. Yeah. And I don't yeah. always see it. I, you yeah. know, and generations, I've had people come and talk to me about generational sins. They never understood it until it started showing up in their family in terms of my grandpa was an alcoholic, my dad was an alcoholic, you know, my brother's an alcoholic, he, and all of them destroyed their families. Mm-hmm. That's what we're, we're looking at. The Lord knows the outcome. He always wants to redeem, and he wants to break that cycle. And so would he have daily angry, anger? Well, of course, with 7 billion people in the world, you're going to have a few that aren't listening. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're going to take a little break, but when we come back, we'd still love your questions. We've got some great ones coming in I'm going to get to after the break. Uh, so thank you for sending the questions over. Let us know what they are, 877-933-2484, 877-933-2484. If you're more comfortable sending me an email. My email address is bill at myfaithradio.com. And I love a comment that uh, just came in that says, Guy Talk is awesome. Also, has Guy Talk ever thought about a visual podcast? Uh, No, we haven't. (laughs) That would be us on camera. Yeah, so we don't want to scare anyone. All right, we'll be right back.
Thank you so much for joining me for Guy Talk today with my prestigious panel, which is Tom Brock, Tom Parrish, and Peter Kapsner. Great questions coming in. Thank you so much for sending them over, 877-933-2484. question that I just saw on my email at bill at myfaithradio.com is, how do we understand the evil spirit from God that came upon Saul that seemed to have caused him anguish and later caused him to want to kill David. Does God send evil spirits? I thought they came from the adversary. It says in that text, the Holy Spirit departed from Saul and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. It came from the Lord. And I think God's even in control of demons. And if people want to be like Saul and rebel against the Lord... It's as if the Lord can say, okay, you want demonism in your life? You got it, Saul. So it, 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 that's, the text says an evil spirit from the Lord mm. tormented him. And then David had to play the harp to calm Saul down. It's interesting. Saul was called by the Lord, anointed by Samuel, set apart for this purpose. And yet we see in Saul the inability to follow the Lord. Mm-hmm. To really live in repentance. And I think that many of us have to understand that we may sense that Jesus has called us along the way, but we still have to walk daily in trust in him and repentance and faith, because I have watched Christians open up, and I don't know where the demonic came from. I'm not even going to speculate here in this day and age. But uh, worse things came in than what they had before, because you cannot know the Lord and then abandon him and not wind up with something worse. Mm-hmm. You know, once you know the Lord, that's it. I know it's yeah, not a good really answer, have... but it's hard. It's a hard Oh, one. gosh, you guys. Yeah, no, I don't have a great uh, answer to this either. I think it's one of those situations that it, uh, it it's clearly safe to say that it happened, that, and just in how you described, I, I think what we wrestle with then are what are the potential implications of our understanding of God, of the demonic kingdom, of um, intercession and all of that. And and you, you know, there are three of us, and, and uh, Bill with you too, and Justin at times, we, we've talked almost every episode, it seems, about the fact that we haven't grown up with a terribly supernatural view of our faith. Our faith tends to be what's called didactic or, or, or understood the, through theology and teaching, and that isn't a bad thing at all. But the Bible itself, if you actually sit down to read it, is a terribly supernatural document, mm-hmm. and, and that there is an assumption that there is engagement with the realm of the unseen— and we just simply, that was not the tradition in which I think a lot of us and a lot of our listeners has grown up with. And, and I'm grateful for our tradition. I just, that's like a big gap, right, in the yep, tradition. Right. And so right. uh, we, my, my wife literally picked up a book just last week called The Unseen Realm, um, written by Michael Heiser. Uh, Dr. Michael Heiser. And, and maybe you guys have seen that book. I just, I, I started paging through it. And it's one of those texts that, oh boy, this has a lot of really big words and really small print. But but I'm excited to start sifting through it a little bit to try to even get my own head around uh, maybe a different kind of view of the text that allows me to engage with some of these questions. Because otherwise, like our listeners, there's we, we see that they happen, but then I kind of throw up my hands and say, well, what does that mean? I'm, I'm not sure that I know all the time. I think you're right, Peter, too, that in our day and age, we don't think about the supernatural much. But just think of all the Christians that have come before us 
who yeah. every Sunday would go to church and say the Nicene mm-hmm. Creed, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, creator of all things, visible and invisible. He's yeah, the creator right? of everything, visible and invisible. And when you went to church in the Middle Ages, you'd go underneath a door that had this carving of Christ's last judgment with demons all over it. And and today we go to church, we don't think about the demonic, and we don't think about the devil prowling around trying to get us, but he is. We stop at the high-end coffee bar on the way. <laughs> that's yeah. right. Inside the church. That's kind of right. The one that's right. next to the climbing wall. Don't take it in the sanctuary. Right. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Jesus talked about us that we're made up of four components, heart, mind, soul, and body. So Western Christianity has done a great job with the mind. We have done great intellectual teaching. We have done schooling, all kind of stuff. But when it comes to the other three aspects of who we are, that we haven't done so much with. Now, you go overseas, where they don't have a lot of the intellectual because they just don't have the schools and that. They're very much more dependent upon uh, the heart and uh, the soul and that approach. And they really do understand the, the spiritual realm much better than we do. One of the great advantages I had coming out of seminary is that the first church I went to, I didn't have a clue what to do. I mean, I really didn't know what I was doing. I had 32 people and a building up with a mess and no money. And from day one, I realized my intellect wasn't going to pull anything off here. It wasn't going to make it. And I literally remember getting on my knees some 40-some years ago and saying, Jesus, if you don't move in miraculous ways, I'm going to have a very short ministry, and this is going to be a very small congregation. And within a couple of weeks, he started bringing us money out of the blue. He started bringing us people out of the blue that would contribute. And and I moved more and more into that to the point where in my entire ministry, I've never had a stewardship campaign. I've never asked people to pledge. I've never asked. My attitude has always been given thankfulness, listen to the Lord, and move as he, he leads you. And quite frankly, for me, the blessing is this. I have a five congregations debt-free. Even if they were in debt, we got out of debt. And everything we did, we paid for with cash so that nothing interfered with the the message of the gospel. So in that sense, I learned to depend more on the supernatural. I wish I did in everything, but in that one, it made a difference. You're not not suggesting that people in other countries are not as smart or educated. No. Okay. They don't have the opportunities. I just want to make sure I was clarifying that. Thank you. Speaking back on the demonic, you know, I, I was raised in Missouri Synod Lutheran, which is pretty conservative. My confirmation pastor taught that demonism did not really exist. It was epilepsy, and they didn't know how to put it, so they called it a demon. Well, how come the epileptics know Jesus is the Son of God when nobody else does? That just doesn't hold water. But it wasn't—so I I grew up believing that stuff was epilepsy until I was 19 years old and encountered the demonic personally. Oh, yeah. And that changed my mind pretty quick. But So I think, you know— Pastors need to preach the scriptures as they are, and if it says that the demons were proclaiming that, I know who you are, the, the Son of God, well, that's not epilepsy, you know. Right. Speaking of pastors preaching, a listener asked, why don't pastors do sermons on books of the Bible, for example, a sermon on Galatians or Exodus instead of topics? Yeah, I, that's a good question. I mean, I think some pastors still do, but yeah. it, it certainly, I can speak from the the sort of the lens of seminary teaching where I teach, and, and I think... I can say this from a behind-the-scenes standpoint, and I, I didn't agree with this movement particularly, and I'm not even saying the seminary where I still teach would buy into this movement either, but what I saw broadly speaking was the idea 
that men and women uh, no longer have the time or attention span or desire to really dig deeply. And so we need to kind of give them what we can in, in as entertaining as a way as possible in about 15 to maybe 20 minutes as maximum length attention span. And so pick out a topic that seems to be, quote, relevant to people's lives and have some spiritual tips uh, about that topic where you maybe take a verse in and out of context and and, and do that. But I, I can say that that has been a pretty significant movement in terms of trying to respond to why people were leaving the church. It was the idea that, well, they, you know, they don't want to be there that long or it's just too much effort and too much work. So we're going to try to simplify it. And I don't want to say every place is guilty of that, but, but I would say that that is a, a trend that's easily verifiable. And, and to the listener's point, I'll tell you what, I, my life is so fundamentally changed at a church that I went to really at early formative ages at about 19 through 25, where that's what the pastor did. And, and I was mesmerized by the idea that he could spend two or three or four weeks teasing out some of the meanings of maybe five verses of scripture. Mm-hmm. And, and you dig deeply into that. And I think what happened in that is somebody didn't have to tell me then that the scriptures were authoritative and true. I was, I was, it was incarnated in front of me. It was like what was being said and taught, it began to make sense in unbelievable ways. And I thought, I don't understand hardly any of the scripture, but what I understand, oh my gosh, is this a living, breathing, beautiful document that I want to dig into because somebody wasn't doing sort of, you know, an Oprah version of a sermon kind of thing. They were really getting into the text. And and I think the last part that I'll say then from my standpoint of working with young people, the, the biblical illiteracy is astounding. I, I once asked my intro to Bible class, how many of you have heard of King Solomon? And I think I first asked that question maybe in 2004 or five, and I would say maybe 27 of the 30 students would have raised their hand. The most recent time I asked it, it was down to nine out of 31. And so mm-hmm. whatever we want to make of that, that is starting what we're experiencing around us. So how, how we deal with it, who knows? But that was definitely a part of the trend. Well, I can tell you where the problem lies, because I've seen it, and I really believe it comes this way. Topical preaching is easy. You know, you pick out a topic that fits with marriage or raising kids or whatever else, and you go look for scriptures that back that up. When you preach, like I preached all the way through the book of Luke, through the book of Acts, through John, when you do that, I don't get to pick the modern topic of the day to preach on. I have to take what's there and then let that speak to whatever the current situations are. That takes a lot more work. And be honest, most pastors today are running in way too many directions. They have way too many responsibilities. And even though I was, uh, you know, pastor of big churches and all that kind of stuff, I still try to put in 10 to 12 hours a week just in pure study, getting ready for a sermon. Most of the, the pastors I work with, uh, don't have that time, or they don't yeah, know how to do fair. that, and it's a struggle. I our, think I think our most important half hour or twenty minutes of the week is the sermon you're giving on Sunday morning. It's the only time you're going to reach everybody. Well, with the exception of Holy Communion, that's more important. But other than that, well, okay, the exception of worship. Good worship songs. Okay, that's important. But honestly, a pastor needs to really put good quality time into that 20-minute presentation. It's the only time he's going to reach everybody that week. Only 20 minutes? Well, or at least 20 minutes. <laughs> well, the, here, the, Now, I'm going to get in trouble, yes. all right? But it's not dangerous trouble, Bill. It's just trouble. Having taught preaching, I'll be real frank, there aren't that many good preachers out there. And you can preach 10 minutes and be dull. Yeah, that's right. You know, even if you're yeah. preaching from the Word, I've heard some really dull oh, sermons from the Word where there's just kind of, it's yeah. like repeating the text. The point is, 
pastors not only have to preach from the Word and preach and focus on Jesus and how it's relevant, they have to be enthusiastic about what they're preaching about. Mm-hmm. If they're not enthusiastic, if it doesn't mean something to them, if they don't take the time to produce a PowerPoint to help it or throw in a video that will help illustrate the sermon with all this technology we've got, then why should the well, congregation get excited? And pastors, if any pastors out there listening really put quality time into preparing that sermon. I was church shopping a few years ago, and I went to various churches, and I don't mean to be offensive, but some of it was so horribly dull. Oh, yeah. And there was one pastor, I wonder Let's if he nice. prepared at all. Let's be nice. I, I just wonder if he went up and and, nice. and spoke. Yeah. But that's true. I mean, I don't he know very that there was any... could have. So anyway, yeah. just prepare your sermons. Yeah. Tim Keller says, only a heart filled with overflowing joy will want to share the source of that joy with everyone they meet. If you had the cure for cancer, would you keep it a secret? No. Worship propels us into the world of, to serve and love. That's right. Yeah. We'll take a little break. Uh, let me know what the questions are. There's still lots of great questions coming in. Now I'm getting nervous. I won't get to them all. But 877-933-2484. Be right back. talk. Here's a question. I was reading John 6 today, and Jesus was talking about how the Father will not let Jesus lose those that he has given to him. And then Jesus talks about people needing to come to him and believe. Do you have any insight on this giving and us coming to him dynamic? Anything to help expand my thinking on this would be helpful. Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father draw him. And also in John is it 15, Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. So I believe you do need to come to Christ. You need to believe in him to be saved. I believe that's not something you can do on your own. It's the Holy Spirit that does that in us. And so the Lord opened Lydia's heart to receive the things said by Paul. And the apostles are preaching, and it says, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. So that's very much predestination. That's what I believe. Yeah. Yeah, it's a very—I understand— you know, what Calvin was talking about there. And and I see a lot of it makes sense. I think the trouble is the scriptures give us the finite answer or the big answer, you know, that God has appointed, God has done this, God has done that. We're humans on this end of it. We're trying to filter it through our daily life and make sense out of it. And that's where I think we get into trouble because, you know, all the disciples, uh, Jesus was given by the Father, but one of them betrayed him. You know, and we, we've got to say, well, then he really wasn't called by the Father. Well, the, the scriptures never quite, exi- you know, nail that down, except, the, you know, Peter does say from the beginning he was corrupt. The point is, is that it is the Lord's will that everyone ultimately come and surrender to Jesus and that he puts that desire in our hearts. And I think he puts it in many times. I don't think it's a one-time event. The question is, how do we keep resisting? And so the real answer for me on John 6 is not so worrying about I know, what the Lord's doing toward me is perfect. And what he's doing toward you as a listener is perfect. You don't have to worry about the Lord's end of it. Do you pay attention when he comes to you, when he opens the door, when he speaks to you through someone else? Because if you don't, you know, you don't want to be one of those statistics we talk about of people that don't go into the kingdom of God. Peter, anything? Yeah. 
Yeah, I don't have a ton other than that. I think it's helpful to look back at some of the context of John 6 in, in an overarching fashion where I think some of the consistent concern with the disciples is how do they belong to the kingdom? How do they come to Jesus? And, and uh, a lot of what precedes some of those difficult to understand passages is about the idea of uh, Moses and the, and the manna in the wilderness. And, and there is an ongoing assumption that the Jewish people were part of the kingdom based on their ancestry. And and Jesus is consistently trying to tell him, no, hang on. It, it is the... It is through the Father and the Father bringing you to me that makes you part of the kingdom. It isn't just based on your ancestry. And so uh, anybody, and, and he's even setting the stage in some way for the grafting into the Gentiles that God is bringing everybody back towards the kingdom that would have it kind of idea. And so I, I completely sympathize with the ongoing question, which has to do with how much of this is God's predestination, how much of this is choice. I think in, uh, in, in studying high, low, and around the corner on that, that topic, there isn't a single theologian that has been able to resolve that issue in any sort of substantive um, way that will satisfy that answer on that. Um, but I think in this particular passage, it's helpful to look and say that Jesus is is trying to say, hey, this whole thing comes from the Father, not from your ancestry as Jews. And, you know, if I can just add one more thing to chew on. Um, some people say, because of my view, they'll say to me, well, God never converts anyone against their will. And my thought is he converts everyone against their will. I was born with an evil will. I, I was born in sin, and I would never come to God on my own. And no one can come to me unless the Father draw him. I, you know, people, well, God would never force anyone to be saved. The Apostle Paul's knocked down and blinded for three days. I call that force. And I'm glad God used force on me. I'm, have, had God not used force on me, I wouldn't be a believer right now. So praise God he uses the Holy yeah. Spirit and his force on us. One of the dangers I see, and uh, when we talk about the predestination, and the Bible does use that term, and I think there's a real important meaning to that that sometimes we miss. The point being, from my point of view, if I believe that the Lord has appointed some to live and some to die, it takes a lot of responsibility off of me as to who I need to witness to and talk to and how long I have to go and bear with somebody. Because, well, you know, that bill... You know, he's just obviously not one of the Lord's appointed. The point is, we don't know on this side of eternity who the Lord has appointed and who mm-hmm. he hasn't. Our know. responsibility is to walk with those people, to encourage them, and to call them into the kingdom, even to their last breath. Amen. Amen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Would you, gentlemen, comment on God's deal with the devil and Job? So I don't know if I told you, Bill, but I've got a book called The Unseen Realm that I'm going to read. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Once again, very yeah, helpful, I mean, Peter right, it's, so, it's, it's, it's a fascinating thing. I mean, one thing that we can say about it is that Satan is called the great accuser, and this court is very much a legal proceeding where Satan is going to be bringing the accusations, uh, whether true or false, that he wants to bring into the heavenly court. And for some reason, God allows him to do that work. And I think a lot of it is meant to then reveal at the end of Job, when God and Job have this amazing interchange, and, and God spends several chapters reminding Job that maybe he wasn't actually there at the foundation of the universe, uh-huh. and maybe he wasn't there in the whirlwinds and all of that. So I, I think what you have is the accuser coming into the court to levy charges against God and his people, Job, as well as, as the function of what's going on there. God then allows these things to happen in order to then demonstrate that Satan's accusations just don't have any bearing at the end of the day. Well, Job is not about Satan, and it's not about Job. Right. It's about God, that he is faithful, and he will do what needs to be done, regardless of what we do on our end of it. I think the, the danger uh, we often get into is we take that one book of the Bible, and that one time when the Bible reveals that Satan came in and asked if he could have his way with Job, 
I don't know. Is there anywhere else in the Bible where Satan comes in to the Lord and says, I want to have my way with Tom yeah. Brock? Yes, there is. And that is? Peter. Peter. Okay, yeah. Satan would like to sift you like wheat. Satan demanded to sift you uh, yep. like wheat, but I prayed for you. And the, yes. And, yeah, there you but go. But I don't know that that's the consistent picture. And I think we go to the, the extreme picture of Job instead of the picture that I don't have to worry so much about Satan. I have to worry about me, my heart, my attitude, my resistance to the Lord. If I'm open to the Lord... Satan ultimately doesn't have any power. I, I just encourage our listeners to read carefully Job chapters 1, 2, and 3, because that helps me put together how God's in control, but Satan is still able to do dirty work. And it also it also helps us realize we're on stage on earth. The, the unseen creatures that we talked about earlier today are watching us. You know, we're, we're things into which angels long to look And we are on stage, and the devil and angels are watching us on earth. I know we don't have time today. Maybe someday we'll want to talk about this. I have been involved in casting out the demonic in quite a few people and in dealing with that over the years. And I've gained some interesting insights in how the devil and the demonic works and how people get get free from that with the power of Jesus. But that's another topic, and we would spend quite a bit of time on that, but it's worthwhile to look at. All right. Here's a question based on the scriptures that warn of pride. Should we be saying, I'm proud of you? Scripturally speaking, we can do nothing apart from God. So in order to bring glory to God instead of self, should we instead say, I'm blessed, or a different alternative that does not bring glory to self? And I look at Proverbs 16.5 that says, the Lord detests all the proud of heart. Be sure of this, they will not go unpunished. And then also, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. I think there's a good proud and a bad proud. Yeah. If indeed. you're a dad and have never said to your son, I'm proud of you, you, d- you need to do that. Yep. And But that's not what that's not the pride that the, is evil that they're talking about. In fact, Jesus on the last day says to us, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Yeah. So it's not wrong to tell your son that you're proud of him or he did a good job. The pride that that the Bible speaks against is that in your face, you know, I'm so wonderful and God, who are you to tell me what to do kind of pride. That is evil. Yeah. Well, we become the little God with the G mm-hmm. with that kind of pride. We don't want that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, indeed. All right. Uh, my son is going through a divorce. His wife left him nine months ago. She was into a form of theta healing and it borders on the occult. My son wouldn't get involved. She left him. And there was also an affair with another guy. My son is so sad. I've been spending every available moment with him trying to give him God's word and build him up. He's just sad. What else can I do? We gave our children God's word all through their growing up years, and we're a solid family, and so divorce is foreign to our family. It's the first divorce, and we're all just so sad. I would really encourage the, the you who wrote that in, the parent, you've done a lot and continue to do what you're doing. But... Be real earnest in prayer that the Lord will bring someone into your son's life, another man uh, who can be a good buddy or help uh, when the time is right, an appropriate woman in the sense to help build him up so that he doesn't feel uh, how worthless he is because she left him for this. It's terrible that happens. But the point is we also have to help your son understand that he has a much bigger purpose in life than a successful marriage, mm-hmm. and that is to proclaim the kingdom of God and to be the ambassador of Jesus Christ. I think, for me, the failure of confirmation, I was never taught that. All I was taught was to follow the rules. If we understand we're here for other purposes, then I think we can handle that kind of pain much better. And quite frankly, your son made a great decision in not going down the path she was mm-hmm. going down. 
Yeah, I think another thing that we can say, I so agree with that too, is that, uh, you know, divorce in the original language of the Latin, where it comes from, is the idea to rend from. And, and we get that idea of rending from the, the very words that we often say at weddings, which is that uh, what God uh, begins to pull together, right? God brings us together one flesh as a human being. Don't try to, you know, tear that asunder. And, and so I think there, there's the very understandable grief that happens in this kind of loss because there's actually been a rending. I mean, there's been a tearing apart, yeah. and that is unbelievably painful. Yeah. And so it would actually be weird if the, if the family was not experiencing a tremendous amount of grief or loss given what was rent. And, and I think one of the things that we probably need to talk about um, about divorce at some point in time in this program is that the state of Minnesota has no power to, to do the final rending from the release of in these kind of very difficult situations. And so to, to go with God and say, um, I'm still in such pain over these things. Can, can you release me from this covenant? I did everything that I could. Um, she walked away. She would not have me. In those place, cases, Scripture says that then they are supposed to walk away. And and in those places, can God do some the same winding together that God did beautifully at the altar to go to God and ask to, uh, for a release from so that there's not this active thing going on. But boy, that's a bigger topic for a different time. Yeah, no kidding. We need three hours, Bill. Well, it's yeah, not we going to happen. <laughs> it's not going to happen. So, Hey, can we live stream? Because we all look so awesome, Bill. You know, you, you, kind, <laughs> you, you, you kind of diminished the incredible looks that the three of us bring to the program. Yeah, okay. We should talk about that. I think we have a, a camera. We could probably Facebook Live guy talk um, and watch our ratings plummet. <laughs> <laughs> All right, gentlemen, thank you so much. Delight thank you, being, Bill. Delight thank having you, you here. You guys, as yep. always. We'll take a little break. When we come back, Deep Thinker Thursday, John and Pam Bloom are with us. We'll be right back. Boy, Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.